Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. What I tell people is when you sleep better, everything in your life will get better. Your health, your work, your relationships with your spouse and family, your happiness in general, all that will be better if you get the sleep that you need. And so if you sacrifice that, all of that gets worse. That is Dr. Christopher Barnes, Professor of Management in the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. Dr. Barnes' career is focused on the study of sleep and the impact of sleep deprivation on leadership performance and behaviors and on its effects on interpersonal relationships. As a general and thoracic surgery resident, I sure did learn how to tolerate sleep deprivation. And mistakenly, I eventually took that to the point of wearing this skill as a sort of badge of honor. And this misguided attitude filtered its way into my professional and home life. When I actually took the time to study the science of sleep, of course I learned just how important sleep is to our overall health and mental wellness, but I had no idea how chronic, low-grade, or even acute sleep deprivation can profoundly affect our relationship with others and our ability to be effective leaders. Another clearing the haze of ignorance by a leader in the field, our guest on today's podcast, Dr. Christopher Barnes. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24 seven. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Resilient Surgeon Podcast. Today, the topic is sleep, a hot-button topic in the world of surgery, and more broadly, in resident training and education. We all know the importance of sleep for our overall health and functioning. But what is far less recognized is the profound influence of sleep deprivation on our leadership skills, relationships, ethical behavior, entrepreneurship, and creativity and problem solving. Today's guest, Dr. Christopher Barnes, is an expert in the impact of sleep deprivation on leadership, ethical behavior, and creativity. Dr. Barnes is a professor of organizational behavior in the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. 
Dr. Barnes obtained his Bachelor of Science degree in psychology from Pacific Lutheran University in 1999, and after serving as an officer in the Air Force, went on to obtain his PhD in organizational behavior and human resources in 2009 from the Eli Broad Graduate School of Management at Michigan State University. After obtaining his PhD, Dr. Barnes worked at the West Point Military Academy from 2009 to 2011 in the Army Center of Excellence for Professional Military Ethics. In 2013, he joined the faculty of the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington, and since has risen to the rank of full professor of organizational behavior. More recently, Dr. Barnes has been working on a master's of science from Oxford University in the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute with a major in sleep medicine, and he will complete his degree in December of 2021. Dr. Barnes, welcome to the Resilient Surgeon podcast. I'm happy to be here. So Dr. Barnes, how did someone with a PhD in organizational behavior and human resources get drawn into the world of sleep? Well, I was actually already interested in sleep before I started my PhD. Um, so my time in the Air Force, I was in the Air Force Research Laboratory, uh, specifically in their Warfighter Fatigue Countermeasures Branch. And so that's a segment of their lab which focuses on extended missions and um, missions which are inconsistent with a typical circadian process or healthy circadian process. Mm -hmm. So as you might imagine in the Air Force, they have some very long missions where pilots are flying long hours at the wrong times of day. And so it's really important to conduct research on that topic to understand how we can best utilize our assets in the Air Force, uh, as well as look after the health of the pilots and other, other um, airmen involved. So this was a topic that I, th I found very interesting. Uh, at the time, I was not a researcher. I was just an officer who helped manage some of the research, but I wanted to get into doing the research myself. And uh, I thought the teams and the work environment was the right context in which to conduct that research. And so I decided to do a PhD in organizational behavior, and I sat down to read the research literature on sleep and work uh, within the organizational behavior uh, research literature, and that topic was essentially absent. So I decided that I would try to initiate that topic and get other people excited about that topic because um, I thought it was important. Uh, and that has gone pretty well. There are several other business school professors who are now also conducting research on the topic of sleep. Um, and for me, that's very exciting. Yeah, I, I think there's a sort of certain modesty there in the uh, notion that it's gone pretty well. I, I'd actually say reading your extensive literature and also your many contributions to the Harvard Business Review, that it's gone extremely well and that you've actually created uh, the beginning and a body of work around uh, the impact of sleep in these sort of softer areas that are so critical for all of our lives. And my, my hat's off to you because it's really quite an accomplishment. So congratulations. I'd like to start, if we could, with some background on sleep science. You know, what, what, how does sleep work? What is the biology of sleep? What are some of the core principles that uh, surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons, or anyone should know in understanding how sleep affects us? Well, there's two core principles to sleep regulation, um, which I would say are especially important. Uh, and they're highlighted by the two process model of sleep. So one of those processes is the homeostatic process. Uh, and it's pretty simple. It acts, uh, the analogy is an hourglass. So the longer you spend awake, uh, the more tired you become. Uh, so that's basically your body saying, hey, we've been active for a long time. Maybe we should start thinking about getting some recovery. 
The other process, uh, we refer to that as more of a clock. So that's on a 24 hour period. And that is the, the circadian process. Um, and so it's pretty easy to notice in our own bodies that uh, there are certain periods of the day in which we are higher in energy and certain periods of the day in which we are lower in energy. Uh, and more fundamentally than that, there are many other processes which follow that 24 hour clock, uh, including your propensity to sleep. Um, so for most of us, we have a high propensity to sleep primarily when the sun is down and a low propensity to sleep when the sun is up. And so both of these processes are important in determining um, how we feel as well as how effective we are in the workplace at any given moment. And so the hourly, the hourglass analogy, is that related to adenosine and, and the clearance of adenosine? Yes, so adenosine is one of the major signals that helps um, to helps the uh, homeostatic process to operate. So you would say, um, at least I would say, the, the two primary physiological markers that we have for the homeostatic process, one would be uh, the increase in adenosine uh, as we are awake for longer periods of time, as well as the uh, increase of um, the, the waves in the cortex uh, that look like slow wave sleep. Uh, so typically we see those um, um, high amplitude, low frequency waves uh, when people are in deep sleep, uh, and we call that, that slow wave sleep. We actually see those same waves during waking activity to a lesser degree, and those mm. build up in intensity the longer we spend awake. Uh, so those are two indicators that uh, as they increase that we should be getting to uh, um, work on getting to sleep. And what, what about the role of uh, dreams in REM sleep? I mean, my understanding is that they play a significant role in processing events or memories of the day and emotions. What is your take on that? So this is a relatively nascent science, but I think it's really fascinating. Um, there's a lot of important things that happen while we sleep, and some of those are related to our dreams. Uh, Matt Walker has some really interesting research about how we process emotional memories while we are asleep uh, in a way in which it sort of takes the sting out of the memory. So we can retain the information from whatever it is we learned without feeling that really intense emotion every time we remember that particular event. And that seems to happen more so during REM sleep, a rapid eye movement sleep uh, than during non-REM sleep. Uh, but this is a very complex topic and there are lots of nuances around that. Um, I think the general principle there is there are lots of important recovery activities that happen while we sleep. Some of these are emotional in nature. Some of these are, are focused on our memories. Uh, and there are different things that happen during REM versus non-REM. That's great. Okay. And then uh, there's the owls versus larks uh, idea. Yes. So I mentioned the circadian process. So that's a relatively precise 24 hour period uh, in our alertness and energy levels and propensity to sleep. Uh, but there are individual differences in uh, the timing of that 24 hour period. So some people who we call an owl, they tend to be shifted such that they have a, a natural propensity to stay up late into the night and wake up late in the morning. And we have other people who are on the other end of the continuum that we refer to as larks. Uh, and larks prefer to wake up and they prefer to go to bed early. So um, this, we've, this is called chronotype. Um, and it has a pretty big influence over your uh, alertness and energy levels. But it doesn't um, necessarily prevent us from living schedules which are in conflict with that circadian process. So if you are a lark, 
you can stay up late at night. You will pay a price for doing so, uh, but mm-hmm. you can sort of, you can have the final word on what your schedule is uh, and vice versa. If you are an owl, you can get up very early in the morning. So as a former uh, Air Force officer and as, as someone who worked at West Point as a civilian professor for a couple of years, uh, I'm very familiar with uh, the idea that we value getting up early in the day uh, and that we think that that's what right. uh, conscientious good people do is they, they start their day early. Um, I know a lot of people in the military talk about getting more done before 8 a.m. than most people get done all day long. So that's sort of uh, woven into the tapestry of the military. Right, right. And I would say probably in the world of cardiothoracic surgery, too, to some extent. Same stereotype, you say? To some extent, for sure. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, So, okay, so I think people are quite aware of the health consequences of not getting enough sleep. So let's just let's just kind of enumerate those or touch on those from your perspective. And then we can move on to, you know, the topics that you're so expert in. Yeah, so that is a very advanced and mature literature um, and was so before I started my PhD program. Um, so just about any major health outcome you can think about probably has some link back to sleep. Um, and so some of the biggest, scariest ones would be heart attacks, uh, cancer. Um, there's a link from sleep deprivation to Alzheimer's, um, weight gain, diabetes, um, yeah. And then some mental health outcomes as well, like uh, depression and anxiety and probably some others as well. So just about all the, the big categories of health uh, that, that drive a lot of our mortality risk and our quality of life uh, have important links back to sleep. And I think uh, the, probably the, the biggest outcome that ultimately kind of catches them all is that mortality risk. So there's some pretty clear data to indicate that if you are chronically sleep deprived, it will tend to shorten your lifespan in part through some of those other risks piling up for cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's and diabetes and and everything else. Yeah. All cause mortality is significantly impacted by chronic sleep deprivation. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. There are meta-analyses to support that. Right. Right. And you touched on the, the issue of anxiety and depression what are their links or relationships uh, and do the three, you know, lack of sleep, anxiety, depression, can they kind of feed and, and work on each other to create more of the same problems? Yeah, there are such fundamental links among all three of those, sleep deprivation, anxiety, and depression, that it's not entirely clear to me which one precedes which one. And it might be that any of those can cause the others Um, we still need some more research, I think, to fully entangle the causal process, uh, or if they all have maybe one unknown cause, and then all three of those are the outcome of that unknown cause. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we can say for sure that they are very highly prevalent together. Um, So you could call them comorbidities, um, but that might not fully appreciate the fact that they might be actually causally tangled together. Yeah, I I know from my own experience, if I'm if I'm sleep deprived and there's something troubling me, I mean, it does cast a, a wider net in terms of feeling depressed about things for sure. Uh, Absolutely. So independent yeah. of the others, you can usually pull one of these levers and see a change in the outcome of the other, uh, of the other mm-hmm. two. Uh, yeah. And there's a, especially a large literature on the effect of sleep deprivation on mood, uh, exactly in the direction that you indicate. So yeah. Uh, Lots of negative outcomes uh, of mood when you're sleep deprived, frustration, um, irritability, and depression amongst others. 
Right. Okay. What you know? What about the difference, uh, if there is one, between quantity of sleep and quality of sleep? So quantity of sleep is relatively straightforward. Um, it's often called sleep duration, and it's just simply the amount of time that you spend in a sleeping state, uh, measured usually in hours or minutes. So pretty easy to understand. Sleep quality is a bit fuzzier, uh, a bit squishier of a concept, but it's equally important. Uh, and in, in my research, I usually find that sleep quality has at least as powerful of an effect as sleep quantity and usually even more powerful. So sleep quality usually ties back to um, how difficult is it to fall asleep? How, um, how well are you able to stay asleep rather than waking up multiple times throughout the night? Uh, and if you wake up, is it hard to get back to sleep? And so a lot of that starts to sound like insomnia. Um, and I think there's a high overlap between insomnia and sleep quality. Um, mm -hmm. That's still something that's, um, we probably need a bit more research to fully disentangle those two concepts. Uh, but the big picture idea is sleep quality has to do with how much recovery are we experiencing while we are asleep? And then sleep quantity is how much are we sleeping? So what we really want is a sufficient amount of sleep quantity, which mm -hmm. is about seven to nine hours, depending on the person. Um, and so that's a little bit easier to control. Sleep quality is harder to control directly uh, because you don't really have behavioral levers to pull to say, okay, I want more sleep quality tonight or I want less sleep quality tonight. It doesn't really work that way. You can control it perhaps indirectly by creating an environment which is sleep friendly and less likely to disrupt your sleep. Um, that, that sometimes is harder for people to structure into their lives, uh, depending in part on the various demands that they face and maybe their socioeconomic status. I imagine for surgeons, you know, being on call could be very detrimental to their sleep quality in addition to their sleep quantity. Uh, if you, if you kind of have to be on alert, uh, then probably that's not consistent with getting into that really deep sleep throughout the whole night. Right. So I suspect there are some sleep quality issues to deal with as a surgeon, in addition to the sleep deprivation. Uh, and both of those can work in concert, in parallel, to have um, similarly powerful effects on outcomes that we care about. Yeah, uh, my wife is a high-risk obstetrician, and, and she takes call uh, still. And and it's from home, but I, I just know that that always disrupts her sleep. Just the mere fact of being on call. And I guess this sort of anticipation and tension around that, it really has a significant impact. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on here, uh, but we've sort of evolved to monitor our environment, uh, even when we're asleep, uh, obviously to a lesser degree while we're asleep than we are awake. Uh, but there's always a little part of your brain saying, should I be waking up right now and dealing with something? Um, and so the more anxious you are, uh, or the more reason you have to be anxious, or the more you, you know there's something that needs to be taken care of, the more that little part of your brain is saying, okay, let's not go all the way into our deepest sleep. Uh, because if I'm in my deepest stage of sleep, I might not catch some really important cue and something bad might happen. So we see that with insomniacs as, as a major issue, but insomniacs don't have a monopoly on that sort of monitoring and alertness being maintained while they're trying to sleep. So I know from my own personal experience, and I suspect that of many people, that if you are chronically sleep deprived, let's just say either lack of quality or quantity or both, uh, that that can, your, your state of mind and your 
your your world, how you are, so to speak, uh, can can start to feel sort of normalized or normal. Uh, do, you, do you have any comments about that? Yeah, so one thing that people often fail to realize is that the effects of sleep deprivation, uh, they accumulate over time. So there are some fascinating studies out there um, by Dinges and by Van Dongen and lots of others that they use sleep restriction protocols. So let's say they allow people to sleep six hours per night or five hours per night for multiple nights in a row. And then they monitor people, not only what their sleep looks like, but also more importantly, from my perspective, their behavioral outcomes. Mm -hmm. And they find that it gets worse over time. So if you measure this subjectively and ask someone, how do you feel right now? They will feel worse after a few nights of sleep restriction. And then that levels off such that they feel the same after night three as they do after night seven. So they feel like this is my new normal. It's kind of flattened. I don't feel my best, but it's not too bad. And I can maintain this. Things are not getting worse from my own subjective perception. But then when we measure how do they actually perform, what does their, what does their behavior looks like, look like? That continues to get worse across the full week, likely well beyond that week. Uh, their, their rate of mistakes that they make keeps getting higher and higher and higher, even after their own subject, subjective alertness has leveled off. So that gap between how they feel and how they operate, that gap gets bigger over time as sleep debt accumulates. Uh, and that gap I see as a major risk where people don't realize how impaired they are and they might make a mistake and not detect that mistake. And then that could snowball into something much worse. So that's just, I think it's such a critical uh, insight here because it not only mistakes, but I mean, if you, if this becomes a sort of a new normalized aspect of how you are, so to speak, I mean, that impacts all walks of your life, home, work, relationships, everything, correct? I mean, it, it is a pernicious, subtle, uh, bad influence on everything that you're doing. Absolutely. So what I tell people is when you sleep better, everything in your life will get better. Your health, yeah. your work, your relationships with your spouse and family, your happiness in general, all that will be better if you get the sleep that you need. And so if you sacrifice that, all of that gets worse. And as you mentioned, if it gets worse um, and then you don't fix it, that can seem like normal. And so yeah. you don't realize all these sacrifices that you're making because they don't, it's not a deviation from something else that just how it is. And right. so it's sad to me to think like there are so many people that could have such a better life, uh, but they don't realize that it would be better if they slept maybe even two hours a night more than they currently sleep. And they're always the pushback is, well, I have a lot of things to do. And if I sleep two more hours, then I'll do less of the other stuff. And so for me, it always comes back to a trade-off of quantity versus quality. Uh, and this is especially salient to me as a business school professor on the work side. You know, if I have an employee and they work two extra hours, but they make a bunch more mistakes, is that a good trade-off for me as their manager? Almost never will that be a good trade-off, especially in complex work or creative work those sorts of things. I would rather get high quality work out of you, even if there's a little bit less of it. Uh, translating that into the context of surgeons, would I rather you do another surgery or would I rather you do one less surgery and just not make mistakes? That seems like a pretty easy choice for me as well. Uh, and we can 
extend that to other outcomes in the lives of surgeons. Like, do you want to sacrifice sleep so that you can do more of other stuff, but you're doing that other stuff worse? Or would you rather all that other stuff get better and maybe you just do a little bit less of it? Um, so the right, quality right. is what we should be chasing more than the quantity for the other stuff. And for sleep, we need quantity and quality. That's the path to, right. to success. Yeah, and I, I love the quote from Jeff Bezos who said, I, I'd rather make two or three good decisions during a day rather than six to eight marginal ones based on how he sleeps because he's become a convert. Sure, sure. Bezos is really interesting to me because he seems to appreciate sleep for himself, but he runs an organization which uh, really works people hard and burns people out. And <laughs> right. a lot of his employees are not getting the sleep that they should be getting. Um, so I would love to see Bezos take this philosophy that he lives and enable that for the rest of his organization. That gets at the next topic, and that is the cultural attitudes around sleep. And certainly uh, in the world of surgery, we are uh, emblazoned with all sorts of cultural attitudes, legacy attitudes, and even current attitudes around sleep. And I, 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 I'm just going to tell a little vignette about myself. I, I remember when I was a resident uh, as an intern, and you know, at that time we were on call every other night and 36 hours and then 12 off. And, and, I, and I realized that I had to develop strategies to be able to cope with this chronic sleep deprivation. And so it's, it may sound kind of silly, but I used to, uh, I made sure that the next morning after I'd been up all night, I'd go down, take a shower, wash, shave, get cleaned up, put on a new pair of scrubs, and then I'd go outside and I'd pretend I was coming in during the day, you know, a whole new day and just kind of trick my mind to the best of my ability, like everything's fine. I get a little fresh air and I would assiduously avoid eating any heavy food because it made me so sleepy. Mm. And, and of course, within me, this inculcated a sense of, well, you can do this too. And this spilled over even into my personal life because I, I would make my son, a teenager, get up at six in the morning and we'd go do stuff. And, you know, and, and I had that whole mindset about you don't need that much sleep. And I, I, I fear the potential damage I might have done to my children. And of course, now my 19 year old teenager, I mean, she gets to sleep as much as she wants. <laughs> so that was the, the badge of honor thing that you talk about and that, that I displayed in the world of surgery. And I, I still think that that really does exist in the world of surgery. But can you comment about the badge of honor and the cultural influences, both overt and even sort of passive aggressive uh, in how we talk about sleep in the, in the cultures of you know, big business? And then I'm certain this is the case in surgery too. Yeah, so as you mentioned, this, this is embedded in many organizational cultures. Um, so as you enter that organization, it seeps into your bones from mm. so many directions of the organization. And leaders are often a primary mechanism for that to happen. So leaders will role model how sleep is not important. So the, they might uh, do this quietly without saying anything by sending emails at two in the morning. Um, so that implicitly sends the message, hey, I stay up late at night to do my work because I'm important and I do important things. Mm -hmm. And uh, sleep is just not as important as these other things that I should be doing instead. And so if the leader is doing that, that sends the signal that that's how things should work around here. On top of that, leaders can say things verbally like, 
you know, I'm too busy to sleep. I'm too important to sleep. I have too many things to do. I wish I had more time for sleep, but I just don't. And I deal with it or sleep is for the week would be a more extreme version, right? I'll sleep when I'm dead. There are lots of things, lots of little comments that leaders can make, which highlight the fact that sleep is not something that they value. And subordinates hear this. They, they, they're, I, I use the analogy of being like a parent and your kids are always watching. Even when you don't want mm-hmm. them to watch, they're still mm-hmm. watching. My son has picked up a few words that way that uh, we, we wish he hadn't. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> in the workplace, uh, you know, leaders make these comments about how sleep is just not a priority for them. Their subordinates hear it. And that's yet another message about how sleep is devalued in that organization. Then on top of this, um, leaders reward and punish uh, in a way that's relevant to this. So let's say I'm a leader who devalues sleep and I send an email at two in the morning. My subordinate responds at 2.30 in the morning. Next day at work, I praise that subordinate. Oh, thank you for getting on that so so quickly. Uh, I really appreciate your dedication to this organization. I have now rewarded this behavior of sleep depriving uh, him or herself. And when you reward things, you increase the frequency of that behavior. Um, so this isn't, isn't even like a mean way to do it, but by that giving that praise, I'm now contributing to that problem. And the opposite could happen. Let's say I'm the same leader. I send an email at two in the morning uh, and my subordinate doesn't respond until say 8.30 in the morning. Uh, and then the next day I just make some little snide comment about how, oh, I guess uh, you must re- really value your sleep if you took so long to respond to my email. And so by saying that, I'm making it clear that sleep is not something that we care about here. We devalue that so we can do other things. So in my research, I find that when leaders do these things, their subordinates, they sleep less. uh, They definitely sleep worse. That's an even more clear effect on their sleep quality. Uh, And then we see some negative work outcomes as a result of that. Uh, In that particular paper, unethical behavior was the more distal work outcome. So these leaders are unintentionally creating an environment in which sleep is devalued and their subordinates then live up to that and sleep less and sleep worse uh, and they get worse outcomes as a result. I don't think these leaders are trying to create worse outcomes, but they're caught up in the same culture. They had leaders before them who had the same approach and they just picked that up and now they're passing it on to the next people in the organization. Yeah, I I have a theme that I like uh, in terms of uh, conceptualizing the impact of our childhood and career on our personal operating system. And it can be a very subtle uh, but profound effect that the culture of an organization or your career has on the habits uh, that are installed into you without you even knowing it or being aware of it. And this is a perfect example of you know the sort of unintended consequences of a particular culture on your overall you know mental status and health. I mean, it really can be quite profound. the The other thing in this uh, world of the culture is the smartphone. And you know we're all admonished, don't use your phone at night, et cetera, blue light, and all these things. But you've really drilled down on a very particular uh, ha- significant hazard with smartphones as it relates to work. Could you talk about that for just a minute? Yeah, and I, I could talk about my own research as well as some other related research out there that kind of points in the same direction. Um, so there's clear evidence that using your smartphone late at night uh, will make it so that you sleep less that night, 
the next day you show up to work more tired uh, and you will be less engaged at work that next day. So you are trading your work time around. You're working more that night, uh, but you're working less the next day. So there's not really a net gain with regards to your work, but there is a clear net loss for your sleep. So you, you ask about mechanisms. Um, and so one potential mechanism here would be blue light suppressing production of melatonin. And that's like the physiological route by which this could occur. Uh, and that's certainly important. Uh, to go with that, there's a psychological route by which this occurs, uh, in which when you access your smartphone late at night, a lot of us might do so with the intention of checking work email. Or even if you don't use your phone with that intention, you get a text from someone at work or you get an email alert and that causes you to open up your email or read the text. And now mentally you have returned to the workplace. So rather than psychologically detaching from work and winding down so that you can sleep, you are psychologically re-engaging with work in a way that primes you for rumination that will make it more difficult to fall asleep. So that phone in your pocket is sort of like a tether back to the workplace. Uh, and it's like a leash that we put on ourselves um, to go back to work, even when we shouldn't be going back to work, we should instead be trying to go the other direction so that we can sleep. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And it was quite an insight. Uh, and it, re it reminds me of, of, a, of a thing I like to think of how, how I prime myself before particular activities. And so for instance, in the morning, you know, I have my coffee and I prime my day with my gratitude journal and meditation. And that really has a major impact on my day. And in a similar vein, rather than thinking of it like, oh, I, I, you know, the phone and all this anxiety, the process of priming yourself for sleep and good sleep and getting out of that mode, I think is a very useful idea and way of looking at that. Uh, well, so I want to move on now to, you know, the many areas that you've looked at in terms of sleep deprivation and its impact on leadership and behavior and that. And, and as a way of sort of setting that up, I, I, I you know, for our surgeons and others listening, I mean, we all know about the operative room milieu and, and I just want to highlight the importance of emotional contagion in virtually all aspects of our life. But if you walk into the operating room as a leader, as a cardiothoracic surgeon, it's very clear that my tone, my stance, my energy, my emotional state will set the stage for that day because immediately everybody's reading that, whether they're specifically trying to read it or not, people are reading it. We as human beings are deeply, you know, tuned into the mood and attitudes and emotions of others. And I think that plays a central role in all of the findings that you've had in, in your research. Is that, would you agree with that line of yeah, thinking? You mentioned that we, we monitor each other's moods uh, and emotions. That's especially true for the leader. Uh, the mm -hmm. leader has mm -hmm. a disproportionate influence over the group uh, in, in setting the tone and expectations um, and for how people will react to that. And so in my research, um, I started by asking uh, maybe a simpler question of, okay, I know that my own sleep influences my own work outcomes. Are there any contexts in which my sleep might influence other people's outcomes? And so the natural step for that bigger question was, well, how does sleep influence leadership and the outcomes that the followers of those leaders experience? Uh, and that was a, a surprisingly fruitful avenue of research uh, for mm -hmm. interesting and, and I think potentially important findings as well. Um, and sort of a central theme there is 
people are less effective in their role as a leader when they are sleep deprived or suffering poor quality sleep. And there are many facets to leadership and we can dig into a few of those in, in my research studies on those. Uh, the first was abusive supervision. Mm-hmm. So abusive supervision is basically being a jerky boss. So we're not talking about physical abuse, but if you uh, yell at a subordinate or scold the subordinate in front of others or make sarcastic remarks that are critical of the subordinates, all the jerky things that you really don't want your leader to do, that's, that's what abusive supervision is. Mm-hmm. So historically, uh, management pro- professors like me who study leadership uh, focused on abusive supervision as a relatively stable thing uh, with the assumption that some leaders are jerks and some leaders are nice people and never the twain shall meet. So in my research, I pushed back on that and said, well, human beings are a little bit more complex than that. Nobody's always a saint or always a sinner. Um, The same person might be a little bit more abusive and a little bit less abusive on different days. And so in that first uh, study, we examined leader sleep as a precursor to daily abusive supervision experienced by the subordinates. And we found that um, when the boss had a bad night of sleep, the next day, the next morning, that boss was lower in self-control uh, and we can have a longer conversation about sleep and self-control. Um, but the, the short version is um, when you are sleep deprived or suffering poor sleep quality, your ability to resist temptations is impaired. And so this can play out in the workplace where a leader is frustrated by something. And so they lash out at subordinates. So most of the time we have some self-control to avoid doing that. We say, okay, I know I'm frustrated right now, but if I lash out at this mm-hmm. team member, it's going to be bad for that individual. It's going to be bad for the team. So I'm not going to do that. But if your sleep is suffering, your ability to resist temptation will also suffer. Uh, and as a result, we see increases in abuse supervision towards subordinates. Uh, in that paper, we also looked at uh, downstream follower outcomes of work engagement. Um, so the big picture here was that leader, uh, leader sleep quality through the causal process of um, lower self-control and increased uh, abuse of supervision ultimately undermined subordinate work engagement. So the profound impact of leaders' insufficient sleep, I mean, I would imagine it not only impacts the potential for abusive behavior of the subordinate, but then imagine the cultural influence of that on the entire organization or the ramifications of that spreading. I mean, it, it starts to create a cultural milieu, does it not? I, I think that's quite possible. So that, that's a, another step or two beyond what I've already mm-hmm. studied. But mm-hmm. I do think that the leader is a role model who sets the example for other people's behavior. And we do know that when the leader engages in abusive supervision, this is associated with bad outcomes and bad behaviors by those subordinates. So I think right. logically we can expect that that would happen. Uh, although I haven't examined uh, those steps down the road just yet. I should also mention that for that particular study, we found that sleep quality was the stronger predictor than sleep quantity. The effects for sleep quantity uh, were a little bit inconsistent for that particular study. But there were several other studies in which sleep quantity was still a a powerful predictor of leadership outcomes, uh, including a a a related study on um, leader and follower relationships. So... And this one, we followed newly assigned leaders and subordinates. So let's say you have a, you start a new job or you've been assigned to a different unit. And so you have a brand new leader, uh, new to you, that is. So we followed them for a three-month period and periodically measured 
their sleep, uh, as well as the way in which they interact with each other, and ultimately what we call leader member exchange. Uh, so, so the shorthand for what is leader member exchange, it's basically the quality of that relationship, uh, primarily composed of trust. So you want a good working relationship with your supervisor, uh, especially if you're gonna propose anything risky. Uh, and as a leader, you want a good relationship with your subordinates. So you know that they will always share with you information, even if you don't really wanna hear it uh, or it might be bad news. Uh, it's a really important outcome to maintain that good quality relationship. So what we found was that, uh, here we're talking about sleep quantity instead of quality, sleep duration of the leader predicted their own hostility towards the subordinate. And as a result, those subordinates perceived that relationship to be poor quality. We found the opposite as well. So the subordinates, when they were sleep deprived, they displayed more hostility towards their leaders. And thus the leaders perceived that relationship to be of poor quality. And what I think is especially interesting about this particular study is both parties were pretty unaware of the effects of their own sleep on the outcomes of the other person. So in other words, the leaders who were sleep deprived and creating a poor quality relationship from the perspective of their followers, those leaders did not realize that their sleep deprivation was having any sort of ill effect on that relationship. Uh, and same thing for the subordinates. They did not know that their sleep deprivation was harming the relationship as seen by the supervisor. So this is consistent with what I was talking about earlier about people being impaired, but unaware of how impaired they are. Right, right. And you know, that, it reminds me of uh, Amy Edmondson's work around psychological safety. And, mm. and I, I've studied her work quite a bit and I don't recall anything about sleep entering into that zone that she's written about, but now you're talking about, you know, the ability to be present and, and, and all those things that lead to psychological safety, which is so important in the workplace, especially in medicine. Psychological safety and trust and leader member exchange mm. are all yeah. very similar outcomes that overlap yeah. quite a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. Now, of course, there's more to you know leadership than being an abusive boss and your relationships. There's also charisma. And you you you've you wrote a beautiful article in the Harvard Business Review about the impact of sleep on leadership charisma. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So part of the job of being a leader is to inspire your subordinates to pursue the vision of your, your organization or your team. So in the context of surgery, you might have a really challenging uh, surgery that you're about to engage in. And so people might be really worried, like, can we do this? Uh, maybe, maybe I'll just kind of be quiet and sit still and not create any problems here. Uh, and this isn't going to go too well. And so your job is to inspire them to believe that we as a team can do a great job with this surgery. You know, it's, it's a really tough one, but it's going to have such a big impact on the life of that, uh, of that patient. And it will allow us to show our greatness as a team. You know, you can have a, a relatively short but powerful conversation with your team to inspire them to be at their best during this surgery. So that's essentially what charisma is. So we conducted a study in which we um, randomly assigned participants to be um, partially sleep deprived or not partially sleep deprived, and then gave them an opportunity to engage in a speech in the role of a leader. Uh, and then we had uh, blind third parties um, evaluate the charisma of the speakers uh, in those speeches. And we found that in those in the partial sleep deprivation condition, we're about 10% less charismatic. Um, and 
I think this is pretty compelling because the, when I say partial sleep deprivation, I think the, the difference between the two conditions was about two hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. So relatively modest amount of sleep restriction led to a decrement of 10% in the charisma of those leaders, um, which is, you know, 10% is big enough that oftentimes you might be willing to pay a lot of money to go through a training course in order to try to increase your charisma by 10%, like, you know, worth investing in. So if you can just do that by getting a good night of sleep, you're, you're, uh, you're doing well there. What I think is interesting about this study is it also works on the other side as well. So charisma is partly an attribution uh, made by the followers based on what's going on in their own minds. So the mood of the follower is relevant in determining how charismatic they think their leader is. So Mm. imagine you have a really good rah-rah speech that you want to give to your subordinates right before surgery, but those subordinates are already really sleep deprived and tired. Would you imagine that that rah-rah speech is going to be really stirring to them in that moment? No. <laughs> this is what we <laughs> find. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we had uh, the same sleep restriction protocol for subordinates of the leaders. And we found even when we hold constant what the leader said and how the leader said it, uh, those who, the followers who were sleep deprived rated their own leaders as about 10% lower in charisma. So the way you are perceived as in your charisma is dependent on your own sleep as well as the sleep of your subordinates. So really, if we want to maximize charisma, we want the leader to be well-rested and we want the subordinates to be well-rested. And then when you engage in your speech to, uh, to get people excited about the surgery to do their best, then you'll get the best outcome from that speech. Yeah. Again, it just highlights the, the incredible uh, impact of how we are on other people, you know, in, in both directions. Yeah. It, it, playing with that same charisma idea, we actually have a new study that uh, isn't out yet in print about uh, the circadian process and charisma. So playing with sort of the same idea, but instead of sleep depriving people, now we assigned them to a schedule which is consistent with their chronotype or inconsistent with their chronotype. So we found that larks are more charismatic early in the morning than they are late at night. And mm-hmm. owls are more charismatic late at night than they are early in the morning. So again, if we can find ways to align our work schedules with our natural circadian process, we get better work outcomes as a result. Yeah, that's going to be a difficult one for the world of surgery since the OR starts around seven o'clock. <laughs> so the poor owls just got to cope. Yeah, so it's definitely more difficult for them, but maybe we should be asking the question, just because that's how things operate now, is that how things should operate in the future? Must we always do it that way because we've always done it that way in the past? And I know that anytime we talk about changing things like this, there are a lot of logistics, there are a lot of politics, there's there's a bigger conversation than just the circadian process. But if at the end of the day, what we're most interested in is maximizing odds of success for the operation and patient health, then the circadian process of the surgical team should be part of that conversation. And if we can can get better patient outcomes by having a surgery, let's say at five in the evening instead of at seven in the morning, I don't see any reason why we couldn't figure out a way to make that happen. Okay, then I'm I'm particularly interested in your uh, comments on the impact of chronic sleep deprivation on our personal relationships and our children also. Yeah, so there's some really neat, uh, interesting research in social psychology, looking at the relationship between sleep and interactions among romantic couples. 
And so that's, that's outside of my own personal research, uh, but uh, Amy Gordon is a colleague of mine who's done some of this research uh, and we've worked together on other stuff. And so she finds that when people are sleep deprived, they tend to engage in higher levels of conflict with their partners um, and tend to respond more negatively to conflict as it emerges in a relationship. And so you can see how that could quickly spiral. So we know that when people are sleep deprived, their mood is worse, their self-control is worse. Uh, and in the work context, I talk about how we make mountains out of molehills, right? You encounter mm -hmm. something in the workplace mm -hmm. that really should be a minor thing, but you're sleep deprived. And so you make it into a bigger thing uh, and you get really nasty about it. The same idea occurs outside of the workplace as well in the context of a marriage or other romantic relationship. So there's some pretty compelling data there to indicate that if you get the sleep that you need, that you will have a happier uh, romantic relationship as a result as well. There's less re research about um, how we interact with our children, but I think the same general logic applies because of uh, the role that sleep plays in our moods and in our self-regulation uh, and our patients in general. Um, I suspect that we have better interactions with our children when we are better rested uh, than when we are sleep deprived. Yeah, it would make total sense. And then the last area, and I think this is particularly vital for cardiothoracic surgeons, and this whole specialty, and that is creativity and innovation. Mm. Our world uh, depends on creativity and innovation more than it ever has now for the advancement of our specialty. Uh, and yet sleep deprivation is one of the most caustic or you know, powerful ways to diminish that. Can you talk a little bit about that and the impact of sleep deprivation on innovation and creativity? Yeah, so there's, there's two really interesting ways in which this plays out. Um, so there's some very interesting research from just a few decades ago, looking at your creativity in the moment. Um, so in this study, um, half the participants were sleep deprived for a full night, uh, and the other half uh, slept as usual. And then they had to engage in a task requiring creativity and innovation in the moment. And there were very clear effects, such that the sleep deprived group was much less effective in um, this innovative performance uh, than the well-rested group. Uh, and that difference is bigger for a task requiring creativity than a routine task. What I think is equally interesting is a different uh, set of research papers, one in particular I can think of, that looks at creative insight that can be driven partly while we sleep. Uh, so this was a paper in, I think about 2014 in, in Nature by Wagner and colleagues. And so they had people work on a very difficult task that required some creative insight in order to find a solution. And then half the participants had an opportunity to sleep before uh, finishing the task and the other participants did not. Uh, and I believe the research design held constant the amount of time elapsed. So this wasn't simply an issue of one group had more time than the other. Mm -hmm. The group that had an opportunity to sleep was much more likely to reach that creative insight the, the next day and actually successfully complete that creative part of the project that enabled the success. Um, and so in the moment, that creativity is driven in part by sleep from the night before, as well as this process of kind of pondering over a problem which requires creativity and where you get to ponder over multiple days, sleep plays an important role there as well. So surgeons, I know a lot of the times uh, you have some standard procedures that you try to follow and that minimizes risk. 
but there are always opportunity for things to go wrong or for you to encounter new things, new problems for which there's not a big thick manual that, that you've already digested. And so that's where that creativity is going to come into play and, and to just be better at doing that if you've gotten the sleep that you need. So this is something that we probably underappreciate uh, for the role of surgeons. Yeah. And just briefly, I mean, you've also written about the impact of uh, sleep deprivation on entrepreneurial uh, uh, you know, success or ideation. Just a quick comment about that. Yeah. So that particular paper was focused on what we call opportunity evaluation, uh, which is especially relevant for entrepreneurs. But I assume mm -hmm. there are probably some opportunity evaluation uh, components to surgery as well, right? Maybe something. Always. Yeah. Um, and so what I think was interesting about that particular study is that we found that when an idea is clearly a really good idea, uh, an opportunity for, for a new venture is really obviously good. It's good and everyone can spot it. If they're well-rested, they can spot it. If they're sleep-deprived, they can spot it. Everyone right. says this, that's easy. Where the difficulty comes in is the, the opportunities which are not as good. And so well-rested people can spot that and say, you know what, that's not really a good opportunity. I'm not gonna pursue that as an entrepreneur. It's the sleep-deprived opportunity, uh, the sleep-deprived entrepreneur who looks at that and says, yeah, that looks pretty good. Uh, because that person processes things more on the surface rather than getting into the deeper structural issues involved in that mm -hmm. particular entrepreneurial idea. So they don't spot the problems. They don't see why it's not a good idea. And so they have a harder time differentiating what's a good opportunity from what's not a good opportunity uh, in a manner uh, in, which is so different from someone who's rested and can more easily make that distinction. So I'm sure there are contexts in which that would be relevant in surgery where there might be something that pops up that maybe you could intervene. It's a bit risky. Should you do it? Should you not do it? If you're well rested, you might say, you know what, let's not do that right now. Let me focus on what I came here to do. But a, a, a sleep deprived uh, surgeon might not be able to make that call so effectively. You know, these things are so subtle and you may not even understand what's going on in the moment. That's why globally appreciating the impact of sleep deprivation on all of these processes is so, so important and a commitment to not to getting enough sleep is so vital, which brings us to best sleep practices. And, and if we could kind of go through some of your thoughts about best sleep practices and, and in particular, if you, if you could give any ideas or thoughts about, you know, the, 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 the poor surgical resident who's still you know, is working eight hours a week, they have no choice. They are going to be sleep deprived. And if you have any uh, comments about what somebody can do in a circumstance like that. Yeah, so I think we can have a longer conversation about maybe making some structural changes to address this issue more systematically. Uh, and we've already make, made some steps in that direction, right? It used to be worse than 80 hours a week. Oh yeah, much worse. <clears throat> but I think we have many more steps to make before we get anywhere close to optimal on that. Right. Um, so let me just kind of highlight the, the broadest principles that we have, and then we can kind of talk about what makes sense for specific applications for surgeons, especially in the context of very demanding work hours. Great. Um, and so what I like to do is kind of present a menu. Uh, so I, I teach this sort of stuff to my MBA students, uh, who also often have very demanding schedules and will continue to do so when they enter the, the work world after they graduate. And so I say not every menu choice will work in every context, so you have to pick what fits for you. So one of the things I focus on um, always at the start is good sleep hygiene. So good sleep hygiene 
has multiple components. Uh, the primary idea behind sleep hygiene is a set of behaviors which are consistent with a good night of sleep, which also means avoiding behaviors which are inconsistent with a good night of sleep. So number one on that list by far is consistent bedtime every night, uh, preferably with a bedtime that allows enough time elapsed after that to get sufficient sleep before you have to wake in the morning. Um, so that duration component is something people should already be thinking about. But I think it's easy to think about um, our sleep as driven just by our, our schedules around us. And I imagine if someone might have to work a night shift, and then they want to they want to shift their sleep schedule uh, on their days off so they can spend time with their families. And so this is tricky because now they are changing their schedules rapidly back and forth. And so there are some benefits to that socially, but there are some downsides as well. They're, they're essentially inducing jet lag. And so if I step away from the medical context for a moment and talk about people more broadly, the way this happens more typically is maybe someone has a Monday to Friday, nine to five kind of job and Friday rolls around, Friday night rolls around, they say, Ah, Saturday morning, I can sleep in. So I will stay out late tonight. It's Friday night, I'm gonna stay out late. Uh, and they're able to sleep in a little bit on Saturday morning and that feels good. And then Saturday night comes around and say, aha, I don't have to work on Sunday. So I'm gonna stay out late again, maybe even later this time. And I'll just make it in, make it up by sleeping in on Sunday morning. The problem is Sunday night comes around and now they have to get up early on Monday morning. And so they can't stay up late again but the problem is they've already shifted their sleep schedule. So it's essentially voluntarily induced jet lag. The official term for that is social jet lag. So if you imagine traveling multiple time zones every weekend, just for the sake of having fun, well, you are voluntarily inducing jet lag in yourself. Hmm. So that's the reason that stable sleep schedules are so crucial in helping people sleep well. That gets a lot trickier with surgeons who might be on call and have rotating shifts. And especially in the early stages in their careers where we really leverage their hours, uh, right. that's going to be a difficult one to implement, but it's one that they can implement hopefully more so as their career progresses. So that that's number one um, to go with that. There are some substances that we can sort of monitor in our life. So we know that uh, alcohol and nicotine are stimulants. And so using those close to bedtime uh, is not a good idea. Um, what does close to bedtime mean? Yeah, so for, for nicotine, um, I'm not sure what the timeline is that's ideal. For caffeine, we, we have a little bit better idea. So the half-life of caffeine is around five to six hours. And so you want multiple half-lives to elapse before bedtime. So, you know, 10, 12 hours, more is even better, but at least 10 or 12 hours before bedtime should be caffeine free. Um, ideally, you minimize caffeine in general, but that's a, that's a long shot goal. <laughs> so at least don't use it at the time of day that it will make it harder to fall asleep later on. Nicotine has a much shorter half-life. I don't remember what that is, but probably just a few hours of caf uh, nicotine free time before bedtime would most likely be fine. Uh, alcohol uh, can actually make it a little easier to fall asleep. And some people use alcohol as a sleep aid. The problem is that alcohol typically lowers the quality of the sleep that you get. Uh, and the overall math on that doesn't pan out in your favor. Um, mm -hmm. So alcohol is not going to give you the benefits that you're expecting if you use it as a sleep aid. Um, so avoiding alcohol within a few hours of bedtime is typically good, a good idea as well. Mm -hmm. And then you can talk about the environment in which you sleep. 
And so the analogy I like to use here is Pavlov's dogs. So Pavlov, way, way long time ago, he was, I guess you could call him one of the first psychologists. Yeah. So uh, he was actually a physician, if I remember correctly. Uh, and he wanted to study dog saliva. So to collect the dog saliva, he would present the dogs with meat powder. But to tell the dogs that now was the time to get their meat powder, he would ring a bell. So ring a bell, give them meat powder, ring a bell, give them meat powder. Eventually he would ring the bell, they would salivate even before he gave them the meat powder, right? So that association between ringing the bell and the salivation, that's what we talk about with Pavlov. You want the same thing with your bed and sleep. Bed, sleep, bed, sleep, bed, sleep, bed, sleep. Uh, so if you yeah, turn- Beautiful, beautiful, I love it. <laughs> this is great, yes. <laughs> if you turn your bed into a home theater and you're watching TV in bed, you are eroding the link between bed and sleep. If you treat your bed as a library and you're reading a book or a Kindle in bed, you're eroding that link. If you treat your bed as a dining room or a kitchen or a lounge where you talk to people on the phone, all of those things are gonna erode that link. So you wanna preserve and strengthen that link by banishing all of those activities from the bed. So the only two things that should ever happen in your bed, sleep, sex, that's it. You know, that, that I'm sorry to, but I, that was such a, an area of conflict for us because once I became enlightened about the value of sleep, I mean, you know, we have a TV in the bedroom and my wife loves to watch TV and falls asleep to TV. And I kind of went along with it and we'd watch a TV show or something. But then when I saw, you know, okay, I got to shift this. This this took a while for me to, uh, you know, engineer in the house. And we've really come a long way. So we're pretty much now, you know, committed to, you know, going to bed at a certain time. And it's made just a huge difference, it made a huge difference. Yeah, I think it has to be an intentional process. Yeah. Uh, getting the TV out of the bedroom, not using your phone in bed. That's probably the worst one is using your phone yeah. in bed. Yeah. And that becomes yeah. so habitual to people that if they don't make it an intentional process to manage this, it's, it's not going to happen on its own. Uh, one, one thing that can be a sort of useful way to partially hack this process uh, is uh, blue light filtering glasses. So I have a, a relatively new paper out uh, in which we had people wear blue light glasses for two hours before bedtime. Um, so the idea here is that exposure to blue light inhibits the production of melatonin, which makes it harder to fall asleep. So if you block that blue light, then you can allow that melatonin increase, uh, which will naturally happen on its own. Uh, that can actually occur and then people can fall asleep. Uh, the key here is don't wear them all day long uh, because you actually want exposure to blue light in the morning, especially right. sunlight. You can go outside for a little bit after first waking up. That's great for sleep regulation. Uh, another thing that you can do to, to help is exercise. And of course, there's a million reasons to exercise. Uh, this is yet one more. Uh, it will make it easier to fall asleep. And usually the harder you exercise, the easier it will be to fall asleep. The caveat here is just don't do it shortly before bedtime uh, because uh, exercise is physiologically arousing and you want to go the other direction when it's time to sleep. So those are all kind of sleep hygiene related. Uh, and then beyond that, I like to talk about schedules. So we've already talked about the circadian process uh, as uh, something that would be important to design your schedule around. Uh, and so flex time is a very useful tool for this. I don't know how often that's used in the, in the surgical world, uh, but in the more general world, flex time is a great way to help people align their work schedules with their circadian mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. The problem with this is we have stereotypes that kind of get in the way. And we sort of mentioned that with the, uh, the larks. Right. Right. Uh, the world is built for larks. So we found in our research that when people use their flex time to start their day later, they are seen as less conscientious and lower performers. Uh, and so they pay a performance penalty for that. 
even when we hold constant the number of hours they worked or the quality of their work, they still pay that penalty. Um, so flex time should be a great tool, but we're not using it right. So this requires leaders to get on board with the idea that people should be able to live their circadian rhythm and you'll get a better employee out of them. So I'm sure there are ways to implement this in hospital settings as well, um, perhaps with surgeons as well. So getting the schedules right. Uh, and that also includes like um, how to rotate the schedules. You want to do that clockwise rather than counterclockwise so that you always extend days rather than shortening days because uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's mm -hmm. easier to shift uh, to an extended day than to a shortened day. Um, so there's, these are some schedule things to deal with it. Uh, and then we have some, some treatment options as well. Uh, and of course, in the, in the field of medicine, we, we love treatments. So we can apply some of these to, to ourselves. Um, sleep apnea is a very prevalent uh, sleep disorder. Uh, certainly double digit percent of Americans are, are suffering and it might be significantly more than that. So uh, continuous positive airway pressure devices right. can be very effective at, at addressing um, sleep apnea. Uh, insomnia is something that is again, probably, um, probably double digit a percentage of Americans are dealing with insomnia and cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is very effective in helping to treat insomnia. So for most of our major sleep disorders, we have very effective tools for combating them. And those tools get more effective over time as we, as we uh, fine tune the way that they're, they're implemented. Um, so treating those sleep issues uh, is, is helpful. Naps can be really helpful. And I think uh, the key for NAPS is we have to have the infrastructure for the NAPS, and then we have to have the social culture to support that as well. So in the corporate world, I talk about how senior leaders need to use the, lap room, the, the NAP rooms and be seen using the NAP rooms so that everyone else knows that it's okay to use the NAP rooms. Um, and we should talk about how it's good for us to use the NAP rooms. Now, for a lot of surgeons, I know there might be such rooms and maybe they're not ashamed to use them, uh, but it's not just for people who've been on shift for 24 hours and are going to fall asleep if they don't get some sleep. Um, but maybe there are some other contexts in which someone has just a long work day and you can schedule in a 15 minute period for them to have a nap uh, that can be effective as well. So ideally, we we structure our lives in a way that prevents a lot of the sleep deprivation. Uh, but that's not always possible. So then we have to sort of mitigate the risk that comes with sleep deprivation as sort of our plan B. Uh, the thing that people always think of as the number one tool for dealing with sleep deprivation is always going to be caffeine. Uh, and I'm sure that as a, as a surgeon, my guess is you probably drank copious amounts of caffeine. Is that a fair guess? I, I did not. I, because okay. caffeine just gets me too wound up. Uh, ah. I don't like the way it feels. I do drink my cup in the morning with religious fervor. But that's it for me. I just, it, I don't like the way it makes me feel. So, but I know people drink, I just was with a surgeon colleague the other day, he's trying to cut back on the many cups of coffee he drinks all day, you know? Yeah. Um, so there, there are two major issues with this. The, the more fundamental issue is that you're really masking the problem with caffeine rather than solving the problem. Um, and so by getting you through your day um, with the caffeine, you're like, okay, I can, I can do this with caffeine. I'm just fine. Uh, but really you're, you're failing to appreciate that there are important recovery processes that happen during sleep, which you are curtailing, um, and you're just not fully appreciating the, the, the harm that that's causing because the caffeine makes it not feel so bad. Right. Uh, the other is that, you know, caffeine's a drug like so many others, there are dependence issues. Um, and when you become dependent on a drug, then you need more of it to get the same effect. And there are health consequences for becoming dependent on, on drugs. 
Uh, my sister, when she was a law student, she would drink uh, one of those monster energy drinks. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Every, yeah. every day, if she didn't get a monster energy drink by 10 AM, she would get a headache, oh, like yeah. a very physical manifestation of her dependence upon caffeine. And so my advice to people is use caffeine strategically. Uh, you know, in the moment, if you're sleep deprived and you're doing something cru crucially important, okay, have that caffeine, but the default should be no caffeine. And if you find that the default has shifted to caffeine, try to think about what you can do so that you don't need to, to have caffeine as the default. So you see what things you can restructure in your life. Well, it seems that the biggest takeaway message here is number one, a commitment, a belief and a commitment, a belief that sleep is valuable uh, on so many levels as you've so beautifully uh, outlined, and then a commitment to, to working to structure your life in a way that provides you with the most opportunities for good sleep. Yeah, and I think this kind of comes back to that idea of the quantity versus quality trade-off, and that applies to work, but also everything else. You know, time is scarce. If we want more time with family, if we want more time with hobbies, if we want more time working, a lot of times we steal that time from sleep. Uh, but there, that's a short-term benefit, and there are long-term costs from doing so, and right. that cost will come to your health. It will come to the quality of your relationships. It will come to the quality of your work. And in, in, the, in your work context, that means, you know, patients suffering as the, as the ultimate long-term uh, um, outcome there. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to the end here. And I wanted to touch on something that I think will be interesting and a little fun. And uh, I think you've written a paper called, is the title Sex is Good for Business? Or is that... <laughs> <laughs> or am I missing the title? In, in, yeah, we were. Tell me, we were tell, little, tell me about that. We were a little cheeky <laughs> with our title, I think. Uh, just, you know, academics or nerds that, that like to be a little silly now and then. Uh, the big picture idea on this one, uh, it's not really sleep paper, uh, but it's. All right, it's, we're on another topic now. <laughs> physiologically based, nevertheless. Um, so sex is an activity um, which, amongst other things, leads to a nice little bump in mood. And so we thought it might be interesting to examine how that influences people's work outcomes the next day. And so the short version of this is we examined uh, in a diary study, so following the same person over multiple days, uh, across multiple people as well, of course, that following an evening in which um, a, an individual had sex, the next morning their mood was better and they were more engaged in their job that next day. So there are some work-based benefits to having sex with your partner. Uh, and it is also worth mentioning that uh, we also controlled for masturbation as well. And masturbation did not, <laughs> did not have the same effects as sex. There's something more powerful about having sex with another person uh, and influencing your mood in a way that lasts through the next morning. Yeah. So I'm not saying that sex is the magic bullet that's gonna solve all of our problems here, but there do seem to be some benefits of sex that go beyond the pleasure in the moment and actually extend into the workday um, the next day. Yeah, and, and in his book, uh, The Molecule of More by Dr. Daniel Lieberman, which is really a book about dopamine, but he talks about uh, sex as two phases. One is the dopamine driven phase, which is getting into bed, uh, you know, the whole courtship thing and all that stuff. But then the act of making love is actually a here and now activity, as he calls it. And oh, okay. here and now, here and now activities release a whole set of different chemicals, endocannabinoids, endorphins, serotonin, mm -hmm. uh, and oxytocin. And, and that's the, the act of 
the act of sex actually causes a release of these. And this is, I think, part of the explanation for that bump in mood and the, the, the afterglow, if you will. So the, the question then, you know, the dilemma that I was thinking, if your partner says they're tired, what do you do with that? <laughs> well, I, I think this, this works best when both partners are interested in the activity. Uh, but I think if, if both partners can fully appreciate the, the breadth of benefits of sex and how it extends into the next day as well, maybe both partners will be more interested in engaging in that activity. Uh, and so that's how we can get there. Uh, rather than one side trying to say, see, this is this is a reason you should do it. Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, I, I need that benefit tomorrow. It, it could be a fun thing for the, for both partners to say, okay, right. well, this is yeah. yet another way in which this will enrich our lives. And so we're, we're going to be even more excited to do this activity now. I think that's beautifully put and, you know, sleep and, and sex. I mean, they, they make a difference in our lives profoundly. Yeah, yeah ultimately, if, if we're not interested in quality of life, why, why are we here, right? Yeah, right. That was beautiful. Well, on that note, I just, uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been incredibly educational. And, and again, I want to uh, take my hat off uh, to you and all the work you've done in illu illuminating the, you know, the, the powerful importance of sleep in areas other than just our overall health. Uh, it really impacts how we are in the world in so many ways. So uh, congratulations on all your work and, and thank you so much. And thanks for being a part of the podcast today. I appreciate that. I, I should mention that uh, even though the sleep and work stuff started with just me, it has gotten to be bigger than me. So this is, yes. this is a, a broader literature that uh, many people have contributed to. Yes, of course. And, but it always starts somewhere. And, and <laughs> uh, so again, my hat's off to you. So thanks so much, Dr. Barnes. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. This has been The Resilient Surgeon a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.